Good morning, church. You ready for a good morning? Good. Listen, I want to just say a moment of gratitude for um, just the opportunity we've had each and every week during this series to come together and to worship with one another, to open up the scriptures and to be changed and transformed in some kind of way. And so this morning, if you're in the room, let me hear from you. Yes, good. We're so thankful that you're here in this space. If you're watching online, thanks for tuning in as well. We are still one church in multiple locations during this season, but it's really good on Sunday mornings to be able to worship together and to be able to see what God wants to teach us today with one another. So I'm excited to be with you all this morning. I'm excited to see what God is going to teach us as we open up to another story within the book of Mark. Now, two weeks ago, um, my son and I had the opportunity to go see a football game at Williams-Brice to watch the Gamecocks play. And whenever we get a chance to do this, we're really excited. We love it going down and spending time downtown, and we had four tickets, and so Eli and I were gonna go, and so we invited actually uh, Pastor Emma and her husband Truman to come with us too, because they're big Gamecock fans. We figured they'd be good ones to go with. So we went downtown, and before we could leave, actually we got a phone call from our very own Carol Kirkland here at the church, who works in our adult ministry, and so generously, her and her husband said, hey listen, we've got an opportunity, if you wanna come a little bit early, you can come on the field and see the Gamecocks like warm up before the game, and I was like, we'll be there. So. Uh, Truma, 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 wow, Truman, Emma, Eli, and myself all went down early and then got on the field and got to go see everything. We met Ray Tanner, took pictures. It was such a cool experience. And then the Gamecocks came out before the game started and the Florida Gators were there, we don't care. But the Gamecocks came in and they were all warming up on the field. And so we pushed Eli to the front, right to the, to the, to the uh, field so he could see exactly what was going on. And it's amazing when you are within a few feet of a D1 actual athlete, like, I was a D, like, 12 athlete in college my freshman year. That doesn't exist. Um, I played football at a really tiny college uh, in Indiana uh, for a year my freshman year, and these players are unlike any player I ever played against. And when you're looking at them, how big, fast, and strong they actually are is incredible. So we're watching them warm up, watching them, their verticals for catching balls is amazing. I mean, everything. We were just blown away by it all. We had a chance to go then get in the stands afterwards and watch the game go down. It was good that week, not so good this week, but it was fun two weeks ago. And is a different perspective that when you're at home watching the game on the screen, it's fun, the kitchen's there, you know, all that kind of stuff. And it's a different perspective. But then you come to the stadium and you're sitting in the stadium, it's a different perspective then. But there's something altogether different when you're on the field, field level, watching what's happening on, on the field in Williams-Brice. It's amazing. And it's kind of what's happening within the book of Mark as we've been studying for the past few weeks. There's all these different perspectives that the author is giving us to be able to understand what Jesus is like and who he is uh, kind of different angles and different ways of seeing his grace, mercy, and his compassion for every person that he comes across within this particular book. In fact, in the whole Bible, New Testament and Old Testament, we have different writers who give us perspectives on Christ. We learn a lot about his majesty, his glory, his divinity. But within the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we get an up-close and personal experience like you're on the field right there seeing what he's like. You can see the way that he loves people. You can see the way that he comes alongside of them, the conversations that he has. You get a real good sense of his grace, mercy, love, and compassion that he embodies for those that he comes across within the book of Mark. So we've been working our way through this book. It's been so fun to go through a whole book chapter by chapter, just saying, what is this teaching us about who Jesus is? How can we encounter him anew today? And so far, we've experienced him in multiple ways. We experienced him in week one as the good news. We experienced him as, as divine, as the storyteller, as a revolutionary, as a demon caster, and then as a healer last week. And today, we're gonna experience him new with a whole new perspective once again to see the person that we have placed our faith, hope, and trust in. 
See, the book of Mark has one big question all the way through it, from the very first chapter all the way to the end. And the question very simply is this, who is Jesus? Who is he really? What are we discovering him to be? In each and every chapter, every encounter, every story is a new way of understanding who Jesus is. The, the book begins with confusion and a lack of clarity. But by chapter 14 that we're gonna be in today, there begins to become a lot more clarity to who Jesus is, at least for some. And today we're gonna look and encounter Jesus and discover him as worthy, as worthy. So Mark chapter 14, verses one and two, the story begins in this particular chapter uh, as the writer tells us about some content, uh, some context, things that are going on around this particular story. Chapter 14 of Mark, verse one and two says this. Now, the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and to kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or people may do what? Riot. They may rise up. Mark begins this portion of the story by telling us about a festival that was two days away that's incredibly important within Jewish history, and it's called the Passover. Now, if you're familiar with Old Testament scripture, if you're a Jewish per person in the ancient Near East, you are incredibly up-to-date on everything that's gone on between God and his people for a very long time in history. And for us, it gets lost on us sometimes a little bit. So I wanna fill you in if you don't understand some of these things. This festival of Passover was something that happened every single year. And every year, the Israelite people, they would reawaken re, uh, themselves to a way that God rescued them many years before. As you may know, in Jewish history, they were enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. Now, at the end of that enslavement, God actually uses a man named Moses, among other things, to come and free them from that enslavement using multiple plagues each one worse than the one before, hopefully for Pharaoh to allow the Israelite people to finally leave and be freed from their oppression. But if you know the story, with each and every plague, nothing happens. Pharaoh continues to be strong-willed and keeps the Israelite people enslaved until the very last plague. The very last plague is the death of the firstborn sons of Egypt. The death of the firstborn sons of Egypt. This death angel would come through the city and it would kill every firstborn son in Egypt. Now God warned the Israelite people about this and told them, if you take a lamb, a sacrificial lamb, you kill that lamb, take the blood and put it over the doorposts of, of your home, then the angel of death will pass over your house and your family will be spared from this plague. So there was a sacrificial lamb, there was blood involved and the Passover is what they were remembering each and every year during this time. They were remembering the fact that God provided for them and God protected them and God delivered them. And so while many in Jerusalem at this point in time in chapter four are preparing for this festival, preparing for the celebration, the religious elite, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, they're doing something completely different. They're scheming on how they can secretly arrest Jesus and then kill him. So how did we get here? How do we move from the beginning of Mark, people being amazed by his miracles, by his healings, by casting out of demons, by feeding those who are hungry, being amazed by him? Now in chapter 14, it's a very different result. Now, now it's, it's, a, it's an opposition to the things of Christ. It's an opposition to Jesus to the point where they want to arrest him and they want to kill him. But they can't do it during the festival because so many folks are in town to celebrate as they do each and every year. They're afraid that if they kill the man who's been healing people, 
casting out demons, feeding the hungry, and everything else they've been amazed by, people will rise up and they will riot, and they can't have that. So they've gotta figure out a way to do it secretly, how to kill Jesus. Now Jesus, in chapter 14, we find out that he was, and I would argue he still is, a very polarizing figure. People either love him or they hate him. Not only then, but I would argue today as well. Some within the gospel saw Jesus as a beacon of hope, a way to see their lives changed, to be healed from sickness, to be forgiven of their sins, to be freed from oppression. Jesus even takes a boy's lunch and feeds thousands. Who wouldn't want that? So people, many people loved him and saw him in a positive light, but some people hated him. And they hated Jesus because he was a threat to their control. He reinterpreted the religious elite, their many laws, and he preached grace. He taught in their synagogues with more authority than them. He referred to the holy God with intimacy by calling him Father. Some people loved him, and some people hated him. When I was in high school, my senior year of high school, my youth group got to go to Connecticut on a mission trip for a week. And we were staying in New Haven, Connecticut. And uh, Yale University is right there in New Haven. And so we stayed at a local church and they were kind of providing for us as we were staying there doing ministry throughout the week. And one night, uh, one of the leaders that we were staying with came to our upperclassmen in our, our, our uh, school who, or our church who's there uh, doing ministry that week and said, hey, listen, if you guys wanna come with us, we're actually gonna go on campus tonight and we're gonna do some interviews and ask people their opinions about Christianity and their opinions about Jesus and such. And so if maybe the juniors and seniors wanna come with us, we'll take you with us. And so uh, myself, a guy named Nick Cunningham, you may know him, and others were like, yeah, we'll go. That sounds crazy. So we went with these guys to downtown um, New Haven and spent time talking to folks. And I'll be really honest with you, I was shocked. I had grown up in rural Indiana. Pretty much everybody I knew thought like I did, loved Jesus, went to church and everything else. And all of a sudden, I found this whole new group of people that did not feel the same way that I felt. And we were like seniors in high school, juniors in high school, so we're trying to keep it cool as they're saying things that are like super not things I've ever heard said before about Jesus. We're like, yeah, yeah, uh-huh. And we're trying not to like start crying right there in front of everybody. It was like, it was, it was a strange experience, but it was so eye-opening to me. Because some people, their response to who Jesus was, they saw him as a fool. Some people, they saw him as at least somebody who was a wise guide, but not really anything more than that. Some people saw him as dangerous. We would mention Jesus' name. Some people got really, really angry. And for many of the folks that we talked to, they, they were rejecting Jesus altogether. What was interesting to me, though, is every conversation that we were having, it, it became apparent to me they were not rejecting the version of Jesus that we have learned about here in the book of Mark. They, they were rejecting a different version of Jesus, one that I would argue is not a part of the heart of God. They were rejecting a Jesus that had been handed to them somewhere along the way, and a lot of times because of disappointments of institution and churches and Christians who had given Jesus a bad name, not Jesus himself. And I would argue in Mark 14, this is exactly what's happening with these religious leaders. They don't know who Jesus is. They don't understand him. They don't know what he's come to do. And so because of that, they just see him as a threat and as a risk. And they've missed altogether that he's a savior. And they've decided they want to rid themselves of him. I'm worried that in our culture today, we've had the same thing happen where many of us have rejected Jesus as a polarizing picture and a polarizing figure once again. There are many friends of mine who have been a Christian for a long time, who have loved Jesus for a long time and recently have decided they want nothing to do with him. And the saddest part is a lot of times it's for the same reason. 
the version of Jesus that they've been given throughout their life is not the version of Jesus that we get from the Gospels and from Mark. Oftentimes when they think of Jesus, they see him as judgmental or angry or nationalistic or weak or aloof or worse. And what breaks my heart is as they decide to be done with Jesus, they're, they're robbing themselves of a new encounter of who he is and what he's like, his mercy, his love, his compassion. You see, Mark chapter 14 is not a whole lot different from where we find ourselves today. And in chapter 14, we see this literary structure take place that happens multiple times within the book of Mark. It's called a Markin sandwich. Everyone say Markin sandwich. Yum, right? So Mark writes in multiple different ways throughout the book of Mark what we term as a Markin sandwich, essentially telling a story that is sandwiched by two other stories on the front and on the back. And the story in the middle really can only be understood and embraced by understanding what is told at the beginning and then what is told at the end. It gives light to the significance of the middle portion of the story. So the story that we just read, where this whole thing begins, the beginning of the sandwich looks like this. The chief priests and the teachers, they're fed up with Jesus. They're looking for ways to secretly arrest him and to kill him. Then there's a story in the middle, and then at verse 10, we hear another story. A little bit different, but it's all related. This story is about a man named Judas. You may have heard of him. He's one of the disciples of Jesus, spent three years with him, following him and, and learning Jesus' ways. And at this point in time, the Bible tells us in verse 10 that he too is fed up with Jesus. And he's decided in his heart now that he's willing to turn Jesus over for a certain sum of money. He's working with the chief priests and the teachers to make sure Jesus can be arrested in secret so that they can do away with him. And here's why. You see, Judas doesn't understand who Jesus is either. Judas was hoping for some kind of Messiah that was gonna finally rise up and fight against the Roman government, one who would be a radical Messiah who would embrace bloodshed and free the Jewish people finally from their oppressors. But the longer this whole thing has gone on, it's become apparent with the background of the Passover that Jesus is not interested in embracing bloodshed other than his own. And Judas can't have that. And so Judas is done. Some people love him, and some people hate him. And in the middle of this Markin sandwich, we find a new encounter that is a stark difference from the beginning and from the end. Here's where it is in Mark chapter 14, verse three through five. Here's what it says. While Jesus was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. Who doesn't love a good nard, Right? She broke the jar and poured that perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. So Jesus, his disciples, others are in the house of this leper named Simon in a town called Bethany. They're sitting around the table having a good time when all of a sudden a woman comes into the room and breaks up the discussion. And she doesn't just come in and have some kind of conversation. She comes in carrying an alabaster jar full of this perfume, and she breaks it and pours it over Jesus' head. The first question I have is, who is this lady? In the middle of this whole story, this lady just kind of falls in the middle of it. And the question is, who is she? Who is this woman? You see, Matthew, Mark, and John, three of the Gospels recount a woman who meets Jesus in Simon's house in Bethany. And the book of John actually shines light on who this woman is even further. 
Here's what it says in John chapter 11, verse one and two. The reason this is important to understand who she is because it has a reflection on why she does what she does. John 11, verse one and two. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. Y'all probably know this story. It doesn't end well for Lazarus, right? He dies. But Jesus comes and raises him from the dead. Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So John 11 says, here's who this woman is. Her name's Mary. She's a sister of Martha. You may have heard of Martha and Mary within the Gospels. She's a sister of Lazarus. You've probably heard about him as well. He got sick. He died. Jesus was a little bit late, but he gets there, and he raises him from the dead. This is who this woman is. So she comes in, alabaster jar, she pours it over the top of Jesus's head. Now there's some debate on who this Mary is because there's another Mary that's talked about as well in the book of Luke. In the book of Luke, there's another Mary, a very common name within the ancient Near East, and she too anoints Jesus with an oil as well, a perfume as well. The Bible tells us in Luke that she was a prostitute. And so she comes to Jesus and says that she was a sinful woman, but Jesus forgives her. And as a sign of gratitude, she anoints him and pours out worship over him. So here's the thing. There are many scholars who debate whether these Marys are actually the same one. Some believe yes and some believe no. They're two distinct women. But here's the thing. It doesn't really matter. They both respond in the same way. When they get in front of Jesus, they both anoint him with oil as a sign of gratitude and even more. And so Mary shows up in this room with all these men. She comes in, has this fragrant perfume, pours it over his head, now, an alabaster jar was essentially a, a, a stone jar that would have held this perfume that was made of a stone resembling marble. In fact, it's the same stone that was used to decorate Solomon's temple in the Old Testament in 1 Chronicles. The stone jar would have held the perfume. It would have kept it from spoiling. And she comes in holding this, this nard, which comes from the spike nard plant. Anybody got any spike nard plants at your house? I'm just checking. It's aromatic. It smells good, it's medicinal, it's calming, it's used in many different ways, to which every essential mom here in the room says, I gotcha, you get your diffusers ready already, right? <laughs> Mary comes in with this oil, and she places it on Jesus' head, and those who were present there are furious with her. They're indignant with her for a couple reasons. One, she's a woman. The men are there sitting around the table talking when all of a sudden this woman comes in and interrupts everything. In the ancient Near East, this should not happen. They're angry for that reason, first and foremost. But secondly, they're angry, the Bible says, because she has taken a perfume that is worth a year's worth of work. It's a year's wage to buy this perfume that she just dumps as a waste over Jesus' head. They said this could have been sold and the money used to feed the poor, and yet you've used it in this way, which is a fair complaint, I guess, if it was really worth that much, maybe you could have used it a different kind of way. But she sees it so important and so significant that Jesus is in Jerusalem at this time at Passover that she's willing to come and sacrifice in this way to pour this oil over his head because she sees him, don't miss this, as the final sacrificial lamb. See, it's Passover. In two days, Jerusalem would be swarmed with people celebrating God's protection and deliverance. And Jesus, now who's come to Jerusalem, he's gonna give his life. His blood is gonna be shed on a cross to save the world. 
And I would imagine that Mary is familiar with the predictions that Jesus has made in the book of Mark. Three different times, chapter eight, chapter nine, chapter 10, Jesus says, here's where this is going, guys. I'm gonna die. Now, the disciples don't wanna hear that. They are expecting something a little bit different. Like, we've been following you for three years and you're just gonna die on us? Like, that's how this is gonna go? For whatever reason, people have missed the fact that Jesus said, here's what's happening. We're not gonna rise up against Rome. I'm gonna give my life on the cross. I'm going to die, and it's gonna be the way the world is rescued. You don't understand it now, but one day you will. And Mary seems to be the only one in the story who understands what's happening here. And here's why. This oil that she puts on his head is used for many different things, but one of the things that it would be used for would be to prepare a dead body for burial. I argue that she understands that her beloved Savior, her Messiah, her friend, has come to Jerusalem to die for the sins of the world. In this last moment that she has with him, she probably realizes, we may not do this again. This is a sacred moment. It's worth this perfume. It's worth the interruption because you are worthy, Jesus. I've had the chance here at the church a few times now to be able to do a funeral for a family that's lost a loved one. There are two things that I love as a pastor here at Mount Horb. <laughs> There's more than that. There's a lot of things. But two things in particular. I love coming alongside of families at the best times of life and the hardest times of life. I love doing weddings. And I love doing funerals. I love walking through all of it. I love being there alongside of the family for each one of those things. One of my favorite things. And recently I had a phone call um, from a family that I've been close with for a very long time. Their kids came to our youth program. I got to do their daughter's wedding up in North Carolina. And uh, I got a phone call and said, hey, listen, um, I want you to come to the house. My mom, a sweet woman in our church named Peggy Fiddler, um, she's only given a few months to live. And she wants to plan her funeral. Would you come to the house? I'm like, gosh, so many other things I would like to do right now than go plan a funeral. Doesn't sound very fun. So I got out of my truck and I drove over to the house and we sat on the porch, this beautiful home overlooking the lake and we sat down and we had this conversation and it was one of the most special times I've had in a very long time. She's a sweet woman, a great storyteller, great sense of humor, so much life. We talked and talked. She told us, here's my favorite hymns. I want them here, I want them there. Here's the scriptures I want. I want it just like this. I want you to know, Trevor, I love my grandkids. Here's some cards you can read about it. Believe me, I know you love your grandkids. I know for sure. We spent about an hour sitting on the porch that day just having conversation, and it was amazing. And I didn't know if I'd be able to see her again. Now, a few months later, I had the chance once again to come to the house one more time, but this time that I came, she was in a lot of pain, a lot of discomfort, and things were not going well. And again, we had a chance to sit on the porch and have conversation. And she reminds me so much of my grandmother, the way my grandma would talk, the things she would get excited about. It was a sweet, sweet time. And that second time that I went to the house, it was so clear to me that what is happening here right now, this is a sacred moment. Like This is holy. I don't know that we're gonna get a chance to do this again this side of eternity, to have this kind of conversation and spend this kind of time. And sure enough, within a few days, she passed away. And we did her funeral here at the church. And of all the funerals that I've done, that one has been most special to me because I had the opportunity to spend so much time hearing her stories, hearing about her life, the things she loves. She was not afraid to die. She was ready to see Jesus. I wonder 
in Mark chapter 14, if this is what, G, what Mary is feeling as she's sitting with Jesus at that moment in time. Maybe the only one who understands that this is probably the end. This is probably where this thing goes. And Jesus knows he's about to go to the cross. And so she pours this oil over his head. It's a burial preparation. She knows he's gonna be killed very soon. But it's more than that too. It's a story of devotion. You see, Mary sees Jesus as worthy of any kind of anointing, even one that may cost a year's worth of wages. It's not a waste. It's worship. Some saw it as worthless. She saw it as worship. The truth is this morning that all of us worship something. All of us. You may have come here this morning, listen, I'm not very spiritual. I don't really worship things. I'm telling you, you worship something. When, I, when you hear the word worship, many of us, we think about a stage and lights and a band and music and those kinds of things, and certainly that's a part of it. That's a very small part of what it means to truly worship. You see, worship takes place whenever someone or something attracts our time, attention, energy, and affection. We all worship something. The question is, are the things that you worship actually worthy of it? Are the things that take your time, attention, energy, and affection actually worth it? You see, some of us in the room, on a Saturday, we worship at the altar of college football. Was that too close? Sorry. We do. Our time, our attention, our energy, our affection, our investment, as if it's the most important thing in our life oftentimes. Some of us, we have a relationship with someone that we love very, very much, but all of our time, attention, energy, and affection go to that one thing. There's nothing left for God himself. Some of us, we have careers that we love and we care for and we're trying so hard to get ahead, but all of our time, attention, energy, and affection go to that one thing and no one else gets anything, including God. And if we find ourselves in this place, if we worship anything less than Jesus Christ, we're settling for something that is simply not worth it. We're settling for something that in the end is not worthy. I believe the reason Mary sees Jesus as worthy is because of the things that he's done in her life already and the things that she's going to do, he's going to do in the future. Remember, Mary, her brother was who? Lazarus. So Mary has seen Jesus already come and resurrect her brother who has died. What kind of gratitude would you have in your heart for someone who's done that? And she knows that when he goes to the cross and he gives his life, and Jesus is fully clear, he's doing it to rescue the world, to forgive us of sin, to give us a new life and new chance at living full and true. What kind of gratitude would come from that? So Mary comes and she, she worships in this way because she's full of gratitude and love for Jesus. How do the men respond around her? angry, they're indignant, they cannot believe that she would do this. They cannot believe that she would worship in this extravagant kind of way and waste all of this perfume that would have cost so much money. They can't believe that she's done it. One of my favorite things at this church as well is to come on a Sunday morning just like this and watch so many people in the room worship Jesus together. And as some of these songs play, our closing songs for you better get ready for it, it's a good one. And we worship in this room together so often, there's hands in the air, eyes closed, tears streaming down people's faces. You know why? Because we really, really love Jesus. We're really grateful for what he's done for us. 
Now, for some in the room, it might look foolish. To the outside world, it certainly looks foolish that we would get up in the morning early and come to a place like this and spend an hour, hour and a half here on a Sunday, maybe even longer if you're gonna serve someplace else. Why would you do, sleep in, play golf, something? But we do it because we, we love Jesus. We worship him. He's worthy of it. For some of us in the room, I know many people in this church who are so generous who when they hear about a need in the community, they're the first ones to jump to it, to give, to make that need possible. You know why? They really love Jesus, and it's a form of worship. I'm willing to give to this thing, to invest in this thing, to make a difference here, because I love Jesus. It may look like foolishness to everybody else, but I do it because I believe he's worthy. There are people at this church that during vacation Bible school in the summertime take a week of vacation to come and hang out with kids. That is crazy. <laughs> but they do it because they love Jesus. They believe he's worth it. And to invest in the life of a child so they may know him too, it's, it's the most valuable thing they could do. Here's what I wanna say this morning. If you really love Jesus and you really worship him with your life, on a Sunday morning, throughout the week, through your generosity, through your service, you name it, if you really love Jesus and you do this, it will look weird and ridiculous and like a waste of time to many people around you. You will be ridiculed for it. You'll be rebuked for it. You'll be questioned every time. Mary is no exception. In their eyes, it was a waste. In her eyes, this is worship. It's worship. Do not ever, ever let someone question the kind of extravagant love that you have for Jesus as you worship him. He's worth it. You see, what Mary demonstrates for us here in this story is that worshiping Jesus is costly. It will cost us something. For her, it literally cost this perfume a year's worth of wages. She gladly broke that alabaster jar to pour it over his head because she knows the worship of Jesus will cost her something. You know what Jesus says? If you wanna be my disciples, you have to take up your cross and follow me. That's not just about walking a long distance or carrying a heavy thing. You know what carrying your cross is about? Death. That's where this is headed. We literally die to our old ways of living, the thing that we used to care about, the things that used to take our time, energy, attention, and affection. We die to those things so that we can come alive to Christ. You wanna be my disciple? It's gonna cost you. It'll cost you. If you wanna worship Jesus through your generosity, it will literally cost you finances that you've worked hard for to bless those around you. It'll cost you in your relationships, in your friendships, if you're gonna carry convictions that go along with Jesus and his love for the world. It'll cost you comfort if you're gonna lift your hands in this room and worship on a Sunday morning. If you're gonna allow yourself to feel emotions, tears running down your face, if you really love Jesus, you will see that he is worth it. But it'll cost you. If you are a Christian here this morning and you're wondering why there are challenges, struggles, costs, and trials with following Christ, what did you expect? It's a part of the gig. Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Take heart, I've overcome the world. 
You see, following Jesus is not about your happiness. It's about your heart. It's not about your security. It's about sacrifice. It's not about your desires. It's about your devotion. Mary knows this well. We see it in Mark chapter 14. To worship Jesus, it will cost us something. Mark 14. She's ridiculed by those around her. In verse six, Jesus speaks up and he says this, leave her alone. Do not bother her. She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you and you can help them at any time that you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare me for what? Burial. It's Passover, sacrificial lamb, shed blood, broken body. Truly, I tell you, whenever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will always be told in memory of her. Jesus says, y'all stop. What she has done just now is a beautiful act of worship. And not only that, but every time the gospel is talked about, she'll be remembered for her sacrificial love. She'll be remembered for what she's done here. Whenever the good news is spread, do you realize that right now this morning in Lexington, South Carolina, we are talking about an obscure woman named Mary from thousands of years ago who poured perfume on Jesus' head, nard to be exact, on Jesus' head. And we're talking about her and lifting her up because of her act of love and sacrifice and worship of Jesus. Your faithful act of worship will have ripple effects that you may never see. Your faithful act of worship this morning on a Sunday morning as we gather, as you serve out of the overflow of love of God, as you whisper those silent prayers, as you sing to the top of your lungs in your car as you're driving to work, your worship will have ripple effects that will echo in eternity. He's worth it. Of all the people mentioned in chapter 14 of Mark, the chief priests, the teachers, the disciples, Judas, only Mary seems to be the one who is transformed by her encounter with Christ. Everybody else misses it except Mary. A true encounter with Christ will change us. When we truly encounter Christ, it will change and transform us into the people that he wants us to be. I was a freshman in college when uh, the movie The Passion of the Christ came out, so I'm like, you know, kind of old. And when Passion of the Christ came out, uh, some friends of mine in college, we decided we were gonna go to the upstate to a church of one of our friends who was going to watch it all together in the theaters. It was one of the first nights that it came out. And I remember being a little bit nervous about going to see this movie because I had grown up in the church. I had heard about Jesus all of my life. I had seen him from, from like stained glass to flannel graph. I'd, I'd heard him preached about in sermons. I'd heard about him at vacation Bible school. I was very acquainted with who Jesus was. I thought I had seen all the aspects of who he was. And so to step into this movie with things I had read about it and heard about it, I was, I was really nervous to, to experience it. We sat down and we had this uh, premiere, we watched it, and if you've seen the movie before, you know it's, it's very graphic. It's, it's probably one of the most truest tellings that I can think of of what that must have been like for Jesus to be arrested and beaten and crucified and killed. And I remember sitting in that theater with my friends watching this movie, and tears were just streaming down my face because I'd never encountered Christ in this kind of way. I'd never seen the kind of sacrifice that he went through in that kind of way. I'd never seen the blood coming from his body. I'd never seen him hanging on the cross. I'd never heard him say for the last time, it is finished in front of me like that. I'd never seen it like that, and it did something to me. 
Like when we, when we really encounter Jesus, the passion that he has for us, the love that he has for us, the care, the compassion, it changes us. You cannot truly encounter Jesus and leave the same. See, these chief priests, these teachers of the law, Judas himself, they had missed who Jesus was. They had been around him, but they had not encountered him. You see, one of the reasons we're doing this book, Walking Through Mark, is we want every person here on a Sunday morning to have encountered Jesus in such a way that when you leave here today, you're a different person because he loves you. He'd give his life up for you. He's gone to great lengths that you might know true and full life. Mary gets this. See, in this chapter, the very end, Jesus will be arrested. His journey to the cross happens very quickly. And so from Simon the leper's house with Mary and the disciples, she is moved, changed, transforms, transformed, and the others miss the encounter. When we are deeply moved by the grace of God, when we understand how deep, how wide, how long is the love of Christ for us, it changes us. You see, extravagant grace always precedes extravagant worship. God's extravagant grace is the very thing that causes us to worship him with all that we have. What that means here on Sunday morning, throughout the week, the way you love people, the way you're generous with what God has given to you, the way you serve those who are in need, it's all worship. It's all worship. So this morning, I wanna invite you, I'll be first in line to come and tell Jesus that I really love him. I really love him. I wanna live my life in such a way where I give him honor and glory and praise that I would worship him because he's worthy. Would you join me this morning? Maybe we could do this together and see what he can do. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the only one who is worthy of our worship. There is nothing else that could ever hold a candle to the kind of power and authority that you have. There's no other thing that we could give our time, attention, energy, and affection to that would have the kind of return that it would have when we place it on you. So forgive us, God, for finding other idols, other things to love and to give our lives to. God, help us to be like Mary, who can see your value and maybe everybody else misses it. I pray that you would give us a boldness this morning, God, to worship you, hands in the air, tears down our cheeks, that we would love people throughout the week in every way possible, and we would not care anything about what anybody else says, because it's not for them. It's for you. It is for you. So God, would you move us once again as we encounter you afresh today? Thank you for loving us. Thank you for offering us your grace, your mercy, your compassion. May we respond with our very life. 
It's in your name that we pray. And everyone said, amen.